Chapter 10 of Mountain Adventures in the Various Countries of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mountain Adventures in the Various Countries of the World by John Timms. Chapter 10 Mount Perdue. Ascent in 1797 by Monsieur Raymond. We set out from Barege on the 25th Thermidor of the year 5, corresponding to the 11th of August, 1797, precisely ten years after my journey to the Mont Medits, and twenty years after my first journey in the Swiss Alps. I must be pardoned for recalling dates of which the memory is so pleasant to me. They have left remembrances of which no disagreeable idea breaks the charm. Our party was numerous on this occasion. La Perouse was accompanied by his son, one of his pupils, Citizen Frizac of Toulouse, and by Citizen Ferrier, the gardener to the central schools of this town. I was accompanied by Mirabel and Pasquier, who had just made the ascent of the Breche de Roland, and by Corbin and Massey of Tarbes, both my pupils, and of whom the latter will often be mentioned with praise in the work which I am about to publish on the plants of the High Pyrenees. Once down in the basin of Lutz, we filed along that high road of naturalists, the Valley of Gareves, so justly admired, yet so often described that it is almost superfluous to enumerate its singularities. Its precipices and cascades, and the difficulties of the road which leads through it, are well known. Of what materials its walls are constructed along which one walks, as it were suspended over a precipice, is well known also. We ascended the Cumali by a tortuous and yet steep pathway, by which the flocks of Gadez pass over the pastures of the middle region. A number of barns are scattered over these rich spots, and form three hamlets dependent on Heas, Gedres, and Garvani. We only found there a small number of inhabitants and of flocks, for at this time of the year they are still in the higher mountain regions. We passed the night in a barn, rather disturbed by the uncertainty of the weather. However, the south wind which had covered the Marbol with clouds from Spain at last yielded to the north wind which brought down the clouds from France. The former are always high and cover the peaks. The latter are low and creep over the bases of the mountains. By degrees they filled the valleys in which we were, forming an immense sea through which the different peaks pierced just about our level. I hoped for a fine day. The best part of the night was employed in providing myself with guides. I had brought from Barège the two men in whom I have most confidence, Marorens, who scarcely ever leaves me, and Anton Moret, who supplies his place sometimes. These are mountaineers of proof, but in the places which we were going to examine, they were as much strangers as I was. I had then, to seek at Heas, an Izard hunter, who had been much recommended to me for the knowledge of Mont Perdue which he possessed, though, as it turned out, he knew no more than we did. I added to him two inhabitants of the Comolet, who served me much better, though they did not know any more about the locality, and at dawn of day we took the road to the valley of Astaba, keeping over the pastures of the Cumulet, which may be traversed as easily as a floor. We had hardly turned from the east toward the south when we were struck with the imposing appearance of the valleys of Thayas and Astaba, encircling, as they do, enormous mountains, although only the secondary parts of them, of which the equally grand and simple forms contrast singularly with the horny rims and dismembered granites which we had left behind us. From hence, the summit of Mont Perdue is visible. 
it is very apparent and nevertheless not very noticeable to those who are not on the lookout for it. It consists of an oblique and blunted cone, and glistens with the eternal snows which rise above the high walls of the valley of Estalbe. I pointed it out to my young companions, who, seeing it so clearly, thought themselves already nearing the end of their journey. Yet it did not take us less than four or five hours to reach just the foot of the wall, and of this wall, which we had either to turn or to climb, I took the measure with an uneasy eye. But we were entering the valley of Estalbe, and in silence we contemplated its quiet solitudes. It possesses, at the same time, the calm of the upper regions and of the secondary grounds. Some mountains which appeared considerable, even without having regard to their elevation, astonished us still more by the simplicity of their forms, which is noticed usually only on the borders of great chains, and in the neighborhood of places where they degenerate into mere pillars. The masses, boldly modeled, present smooth yet striking contours, which no strange accident has caused to pass the limits of the beautiful. All rise and fall in just proportions. Nothing spoils the harmony of a design both severe and bold, and the color, too, so transparent and pure. It is light gray, a little warmed with pink, suits equally the light or shade, and softens the contrast between them. This color is continued up to the very azure of the sky. There were very few fallen masses, and especially recent ones. Vegetation flourishes up to the very foot of the rocky ridges. It has even, here and there, taken possession of some old rocks. A little river with grassy banks flows peacefully over a stony bed, and afterwards, further on, it becomes a torrent. There, the service tree overshadows Solomon's seal, which is rare in our mountains, though it here acquires uncommon dimensions. Over the declivities of the lateral mountains may be seen the red pine, which here defies the axe. All the blocks are adorned with the light plumy bunches of the superb long-leaved sassafrage. In the uncultivated ground there is sometimes found the carline of the Pyrenees, and sometimes a beautiful panicant described by Guin, and which here changes sometimes from emesith to crimson. On the turf there are those two carlines particularly mentioned by Aloni and Villars, the second of which, described under the name of acanthus-leaved carline, may be known by the golden color of its calyx crown. There can be nothing more brilliant or more splendid than a piece of turf bedizened with those two carlines. We pressed on, and at length we all sat down before those mountain walls of Estalba, which seemed to rise higher as we advanced towards them. Already we could see that fine glaciers lay under the fields of snow which in some parts diversified the landscape. At last, after four hours' march, we found ourselves just under the intermediate glacier, and we stopped to gaze on those walls which seemed to tower up to the very skies. The place in which we were is the highest to which shepherds go. The name of Culias is given to their temporary encampments, and this one was called the Culia of the Abbasit Desis. We here met two Spanish shepherds belonging to that set of them who rent the highest pastures of the Pyrenees for their traveling flocks. These two men were stretched by the side of a hut, made of dry stones, just large enough to contain them sitting or lying. That was all the shelter that these two nomads, or rather half-savages, who inhabit this region only for some days in the fine season, needed. Sometimes they dispensed with a hut of any kind, and made shift with the shelter of some overhanging rock. To have met two men of this sort, two real habitués of the environs of Mount Perdue, appeared a most fortunate adventure in our ascent up the mountain and we were all eager to ask them questions. But the shepherds had only passed a few days in this region of eternal snow, 
and their replies were only half satisfying me when a smuggler of their nation came up and joined them. This latter was quite an authority. Forced to avoid the beaten roads and to trust to the chances of the most dangerous paths, we felt that he must know Mont Perdu almost better than anyone, and as it proved, his advice differed greatly from that of the shepherds. While he and they were discussing the question of the route, we took a little repose, and I, according to my custom, formed my plan. The unanimous result of their consultation was that we must pass the Porte du Pened, descend into the valley of Vielce, and remount on the right by some very steep rocks which they said were always practicable. But to ascend again for two hours, just to have to descend one, and then to climb rocks which must occupy us four or five more, this plan would just bring us up to Mount Perdu when it was time to leave it again. I had been considering the glacier below which we stood. It was still covered with snow, and this snow must, I imagined, make it practicable. The inclination was great, but not an insuperable difficulty, and the glacier read to a breach which seemed to open right on the face of Mount Perdu. So I declared that I was resolved to try the chances. This the shepherds thought outrageous, for though they allowed that these snows were sometimes practicable, yet they did not believe them to be so when grey spots showed the surface of the glacier to be visible through them. At first the smuggler alone applauded me, though my faithful Lawrence afterwards took my side. The others smiled, and our local guides were just the most incredulous and the least courageous. It was necessary, however, to put an end to this state of indecision, so I declared that I should ascend the glacier with whoever would follow me, and as obstinacy never fails to decide irresolution, they all came. As to the smuggler, he had already followed his own plans, and very soon we lost sight of him. We went directly toward the mouth of the glacier by slopes that were steep enough, certainly. Yet they were grassy, and seemed to have only lately emerged from the snow which covers them for seven or eight months of the year. The fresh green was in its spring, and the ground covered with alpine flora. However, we approached the steep sides of the mountain, and then what had seemed the smallest objects acquired enormous dimensions. At last we reached the debris which comes down from the mountain, and which forms the moraine of the glacier. We were obliged to step onto the snow, and face the threatening colère at the top of which we expected to find Mont Perdu. At first this was a mere game. The snow had a good consistency and a moderate inclination, and we went on with all the confidence which experience of mountains gives. But we had not gone fifty steps when the inclination increased, and we could see that it continued to do so. We looked above our heads, and still the ground became steeper. Our pace slackened. We stopped and consulted what was to be done. I saw that La Perouse remained behind, and got him to try the cramping irons which I used, and which my pupils had adopted after my example. They were those which de Saussure had used in his most perilous journeys. But the help was as strange to him as the place which obliged him to have recourse to them. Nothing, at his age, could give him the requisite mountaineering habits. So I conjured him not to load me with the responsibility of his safety. He consented to leave us, and thus we parted at the moment on which I had most reckoned on the assistance of his learning. I left him then at the bottom of the glacier with my brave Anton, whom I had attached to his service, and they seated themselves on a rock from whence they could see us slowly continuing our way. We had not proceeded a quarter of an hour when the snow became so hard that our footsteps made no impression on it, so we had to think carefully of our footing and to help ourselves with our hatchets. Then we settled ourselves into a file and took care to plant our feet in the steps cut by the first three of the column, a work in which the gardener, Ferrier, distinguished himself, his hardiness contrasting strangely with the sang 
of our other mountaineers. During the first hour, all went well. We carefully avoided the uncovered part of the glaciers, and by means of numerous zigzags, prudently managed, we were avoiding the difficulty of a slope which varied from thirty-five to forty degrees, when all at once we perceived a man distractedly clinging to a rock from whence he called to us for aid. It was our smuggler, and a long track in the snow told his story. This unfortunate man had ventured without cramping irons, without a hatchet, without any of the means of safety which men of his trade never fail to carry, and he had slipped down more than two hundred paces from being too near the edge of the rock. And, once launched, it was inconceivable how he ever succeeded in stopping himself. We should have liked to fly to his assistance, but could only move slowly. However, we succeeded in rescuing him at last, and then we placed him in our ranks. He had lost his hat, his waistcoat, his pack of merchandise, and he had had a greater loss still, for he had lost his stick which had preceded him down the precipice, and which we could not restore to him. The other things were scattered about, and we soon recovered the waistcoat and the goods. But the hat had stuck in a dangerous place. It cost us a quarter of an hour's labor, although it was within twenty steps. It was in vain, however, that we put the poor fellow in the very middle of our party. He could not recover his composure. Our assurance acted less on him than his uneasiness did on my companions. I saw already on the face of two of them signs of fear of which I dreaded the consequences. At every step they asked me to measure the inclination of the glacier, which was as much as sixty degrees. It was now, therefore, a question whether we should change our route and try the rocks on the side of the ice. This was not, in my opinion, desirable, but the general uneasiness increased. Twice we waited while our two guides from the Cumulet attempted the escalade. Each time they were constrained to come down again. It was necessary to return to the snow, where, by means of our old maneuver, there was really nothing to fear except the discouragement of the party. The glacier was here at its greatest inclination, and we were also at our last effort. Above, the slope became visibly more gentle, and the ice was hidden under snows of a whiteness so pure as to indicate the summit of the ridge, standing out against the deep blue of the sky. The only question now was how to triumph over an obstacle beyond which our imaginations showed us the top of Mount Perdue. We gathered up all our remaining strength. We mutually animated and encouraged one another. At each step that we took, we saw the distance lessening. The breach which had long been hidden from us by the edge of the glacier reappeared in gigantic proportions, and already we felt the cold wind which rushed through the great opening. We hastened on, we pushed forward, and, out of breath, we reached the desired point. An exclamation of delight was uttered by all, but a deep silence succeeded to the sight of a new world, of the depths which separated us from it, of the glaciers which girded it round, of the clouds which covered it, a frightful and yet sublime spectacle by which our senses seemed overpowered. A single instant had sufficed to develop it in all its majesty, but for several moments we could not collect our senses. There is Mount Perdue. There is Mount Perdue, said one to another, and still no one could single it out from the chaos of rocks, snows, and vapors. And it was not without reason that we saw Mount Perdue everywhere. Everything here belongs to it, everything is a part of it, even the ridge which we had reached, and which was only separated from the highest point by a depression or erosion of a part of its sides. This peak was before us, a little to the left, white shaded with grey, and apparently retreating in the midst of a thick cloud of haze which moved slowly round it. On the right stood out the cylinder, more sombre than this cloud, more menacing than Mont Perdue itself, set up on its enormous pedestal about the level of which we stood, 
and so near us that it appeared as if we could touch it with our hands. It signified nothing that I had seen it a hundred times at a distance. It appeared to me more fantastic than ever. Always invisible from the intermediate stations, it had suddenly grown into a colossus which was magnified in my eyes by the remembrance of its first appearance. This figure of a truncated tower, which recalls the idea of known dimensions, contrasting with proportions to which nothing is comparable, its situation, color, proximity, the vapor in which it was enveloped, all concurred to make this enormous rock the most extraordinary object in the picture. It was to this that all eyes constantly returned. It was this that the guides persisted in calling Mount Perdue. But what was still more unexpected, if possible, than these strange sights, what no former view had prepared us for, what we could only look on from the height of the observatory in which we were placed, was the indescribable appearance of the majestic support of these two summits. Cut out by the same scissors which have fashioned the flights of the Marbore, it presents a succession of steps, sometimes draped in snow, sometimes covered with glaciers which at times overflow and pour themselves, one over the other in large and motionless cascades, even to the borders of a lake of which the surface, still frozen, but freed from the snows, shone with a quiet brightness which heightened the dazzling whiteness of its banks. This lake, the desolate area in which it reposed, the mass of ice which bounded it on the south, the black walls which surmount it, the cylinder and Mont Perdue towering up into a stormy sky, and that rocky, naked, and rugged enclosure, from one of the battlements of which we were contemplating the most imposing and frightful scene in the Pyrenees, all and everything defied comparison. Nothing at first presented itself by comparison with the known dimensions of which we could estimate the size of the whole, and we should have been reduced to a vague notion of heights and distances if accident had not furnished us with a determinate object in which a troop of izards had wandered over the ice of the lake and drank in the crevasses. At the first cry they fled over the rocks, leaving us alone in these vast deserts, the extent of which they had enabled us to measure. It was time to settle what we should do in order to visit the attainable points. I had not been slow to perceive that the way to the peaks was closed to us by the chaotic state of its glacier and the steepness of its sides. Even the Izards had avoided them in their flight, though that would have been the shortest way to escape from our view, and they had gone the whole length of the lake in order to take refuge in the more accessible heights which separate the Cylinder from the region of the Marbore. But we might descend into the basin. The slope, though rapid, was absolutely free from danger and once on the level of the lake and its icy surface opened communication with several parts, and nothing hindered us from following the paths taken by the Izards up to the western ridge of the Cylinder, and over the last steps of Mount Perdue. But we had to think of returning. It was midday, and the state of the sky indicated an approaching change in the weather. If we spent the rest of the day here, we should have no longer a choice of the way to retreat, and our only resource would be to go back by the same way that we had come but those of my companions who had trembled at the perils of the ascent could not, without imprudence, be exposed to the more real danger of that descent. In default of convenient roads, we must at least choose dangers not so well known to them. I remembered the declavity of the Valley of Beos, which the Spanish shepherds regard as the natural road from the lake. According to them, this way communicated with the back of the Porte de Pinede. It was a long detour, certainly, and if we took it, we must give up, from that time, any new enterprise. But, on the other hand, the smuggler assured me that these rocks were very practicable, and that he was going part of the way himself to get to the Valley of Fowlow. I could then recross the lake the next day, and possibly conduct La Perouse into these extraordinary places where I had already regretted his absence so many times. 
so I quickly decided to inform him of my movements. I wrote to him to pass the Porte de Pinay directly, and to wait for us at the bottom of the Valley of Bayeux in a ruined house which I described to him from the smuggler's description of it. I told him of my design of returning next day, and of my hope that he might be able to go with me. I gave the note to one of the guides from Cumulet, who decided to carry it over the Valley of Snow, at the bottom of which he must still be. The departure of my courier was not the least affecting episode of the journey. We had to watch him clambering through the snow, helping himself with his hands, and going with the greatest care that he might not miss the track of our steps. All these delaying obstacles which he encountered were bad auguries for the success of his embassy, and the event justified the foreboding. It was again in vain that I had hoped to conduct La Perouse to Mount Perdu. However, I gave a last look at the rocks of the beach, and my companions, whose predilection was for plants, drew my attention to the few specimens of vegetation which managed to resist even the bitter winter of a region of 9,000 feet at least above the level of the sea. The northern exposure only offered us one plant, but it was the glacial renonculus, which is so rare in the Pyrenees that I had only found two specimens at the top of Neoville, and of them I had been obliged to send one to La Perouse in order to persuade him that it was there. In this place it was abundant and superb, but suspended to rocks which were exceedingly steep, and which were themselves suspended over such a formidable precipice, that in order to get some, all our zeal for science was called forth. Mirbel and Pasquier first seized some, and their example encouraged the others. No one had made such a bold step before, and none had been made so heartily. From the bosom of the lake rose a chain of rocks which formed a long promontory. The shapes of this chain indicate a perfect similitude between its structure and that of the bases of the cylinder. This, therefore, offered to me an object of comparison which must take away all my doubts. I descended quickly. The lake was covered with a thick ice, the crevasses of which it was easy to jump, and I soon gainsayed the promontory. I found the rock divided into horizontal layers, like the steps of the Marbourg, the walls of the Breche de Roland, and the cylinder and its platform. But then these layers? Were they only on the external edges, or strata running through? The first stroke of the hammer answered the question. They were only external, and the strata were vertical. I was going to strike a second time into the body of the rock, when I perceived on its surface a reddish projection. I looked nearer, and recognized a piece of a palpary. I looked again, and I saw the upper valve of an oyster, then some fragments of a mud pereur, and then other broken zoophytes, of which I could not determine the species. I cried out, called my companions, and assembled them on the rocks, which were all clammy with the remains of various organisms, and I showed them these venerable remains, which on the sides of Mont Perdu had a very peculiar importance. They spread themselves over the promontory, and eagerly tore up everything which could be distinguished from the substance of the stone, and working myself with a new ardor in the midst of these ardent workers, I enjoyed a pleasure which no one could share with me, that of having opened so fine a field of observation to future travellers, who perhaps will find there some day what the actual state of our scientific knowledge did not permit us to see. It was a pleasant thing to see the pupils of two rising schools in possession of a field of which the learned would envy us the discovery, and I could, not unmoved, see these young men gaining from this first success a passion for research and a thirst for learning. They themselves felt the influence of the place, and gave themselves up to transports which almost amounted to delirium. "'Let us stay here,' they said, Tomorrow, perhaps, we shall accomplish the ascent to the peak. But the cold of the night! What is a night with such a hope before us? But what about food? Ah! They would do without that! Fatigues, fears, dangers, 
all were forgotten. Prudence and foresight were at a discount. The ice was no longer terrible. The thick clouds which encircled the summit were no longer threatening. When all at once there was heard from these very clouds a fearful peal, which echoed and thus multiplied itself many times among the rocks. The most determined turned pale. They thought that they could already see the storm breaking over these frightful solitudes, and that it would shut us in. It was, nevertheless, nothing but a fall of snow from the upper steps of the mountain. But the impression was made, and now they only thought of getting away. Hardly had we passed the lake when we found ourselves on the edge of a precipice, of which no other would give any idea. It seemed to us as if the earth had altogether on a sudden escaped from beneath our feet. On whatever side we turned, there seemed nothing but a precipitous declivity and steep walls. On the left, the mountains of Estaba, on the right, Mount Perdue, plunging into an immense profundity and forming two long parallel chains which were made of the same rock, cut out by the same model, and which enclosed between these enormous boulevards the valley of Barus, over which we stood, as from some height on the airy regions, and which gradually disappeared from view. Truly this valley was ravishing, lying in the midst of the rocks which serve as battlements to it, and of the snows which fertilize it. Rich in the luxury of nature, and lovely in its wild beauty, it is just the earth in the first days of its birth, and before man has subjected it to cultivation. I sought in vain for any traces of the region being frequented, but neither stronghold nor road, nor pathway nor inn could be seen, which they either cannot or dare not face, and which whoever approaches may easily think himself the first who has done so. Those meadows without flocks, those shades which have never been planted, those virgin forests, those box hedges which have never been clipped, and that torrent which rises in Mount Perdue, the Sinia, so proud of its origin, so impetuous, so ungovernable, coursing along in a cutting full of ruins. All these things must be seen to be imagined. The eye follows this river in its course, and wanders with it in the desert, where it travels without obstacle and without witness. It seems to flee, and you follow it still. The eye seeks on the edge of the horizon the last rippling of its waves. The ear catches eagerly the last murmur which the wind brings back. It escapes all the senses at last in the deep valleys where it runs, and then the imagination still pursues it to the distant banks where the Ebro receives those waters of which we here saw the secret springs. But, after all, what is the great hidden charm of these deserts? What involuntary, deep, and imperious feeling holds me in these places where my fellows have not yet established their empire? What irresistible inclination ceaselessly draws back my thoughts and my steps, and holds and amuses my fancy in the vain desire there to build my cottage and bring up my family? What is civilization if it still leave in our hearts an imperishable regret for our old independence? What is society if men, whom she has fashioned to her will, and attached to her by habit and necessity, cannot escape an instant from the crowd which constrains him without shedding a tear at the thought of the necessity which plunges him back into it. Raymond Voyages au Mont Perdue End of section 10 Recording by Todd